Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Hello, Bill Bant. Hey, man. You know what? I'm excited. I'm excited about today's episode because we have a guest. Woohoo! Our first guest host of all time in the universe of the world. We have Ben Lawhorn joining us from three films and a podcast. Welcome, Ben. What is up, guys? I am so excited to be here and I did not know I was the first one. So the pressure's on. I got to set the bar, hopefully, for these future guests. But I'm so excited to be here. That's what we told Ben. He is our guinea pig. So thank you so much for being here, Ben. Uh, why don't you tell our audience a little about yourself and the three films and a podcast podcast? Yeah. So a couple of friends and I, Matt and Tyler, have a podcast called Three Films and a Podcast that you guys have joined us for. Um, you guys came on. We were doing, I don't remember exactly what the theme was. I think it was uh, musical movies, something along those lines. We talked about Blues Brothers, um, which was a ton of fun. Um, and yeah, so basically the, the premise of the podcast is, uh, we each pick a theme for a month and then all of us pick a movie relating to that theme that we haven't seen before, uh, just in an effort to see new things. You know, I kept watching the office for like the 30th time and Tyler with, you know, community It's like, we have every movie in the world at our fingertips. Like we should be watching new stuff. So that was basically what it's all about. So we just try to watch new things um, and have guests on every week. So I'm excited to get you guys back on there, but yeah, that's three films. Um, I also have another one uh, with my co-host Ethan called 24 minutes of a 24. And we just go through the a 24 library. We try for 24 minutes. I think we've done it once. It's pretty hard <laughs> to talk about a movie that fast. So, um, but yeah, if you like a 24 movies or TV shows, whatever uh, we talk about that there. So yeah, you can find that at 24, Four minutes of a twenty-four, and the other one is at three films pod on all the socials. Outstanding! Thanks for shouting out the the twenty-four one, a twenty-four man. I'm a fan of their films, and I was not aware that you had that one going on. So looking forward to checking that out. Thanks, man. Yeah, just felt you know not enough going on, so why not throw another podcast yeah. in there? But <laughs> right. uh, an excuse, I guess, to watch more movies. Yes, there you go. All right, so Ben, um, we're going to throw out some rapid-fire questions to you because, I mean, you told us a little bit about yourself, but we want to know some more. Okay, ready? Perfect. Here we go. First question. What was the first movie you ever saw in the theater? The first one I can remember seeing is The Little Mermaid. Um, as a kid, I think I was like six or seven when it came out. So that that's the first thing I have a conscious memory of in the theater. All right. Can you give us a quick review of the last movie you saw that wasn't for your own podcast? Uh, yeah, the horror kind of rom-com uh, called Barbarian. I don't know if either of you guys have seen that on HBO Max, but yeah, crazy movie. If you haven't seen it, I don't want to tell you much about it, to be honest. It's best to go in blind, but check out Barbarian on HBO Max. Awesome. All right. So what is your go-to snack food when watching a movie? Popcorn with butter, a cherry Coke, and red vines. Every time. That's what I got to have. I love it. Who is your favorite actor or actress? Man, this is honestly one of the toughest questions I think out of this whole thing to answer. I don't know that I have an answer, but what I do know is that every time I see Philip Seymour Hoffman on the screen, I am so excited to be watching him, whether it's like Capote, 25th Hour, even Along Came Polly. Like, I don't care if Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it, I'm stoked. So I'm going to get with him. What is your favorite movie of all time? Well, I mean, talk about a segue for this episode. My favorite movie of all time is indeed Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, I feel like we're going to be talking about it a bunch, though. So I'm going to throw out my second favorite, which is Casablanca. Ooh, 
great. Both ends of the oh, spectrum there. Love that one. Yes. All right. So, so you picked our movie today and it is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, so why don't you just give us a little brief synopsis about it? Yeah. I mean, it's the 1986 comedy classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off, um, from the king of high school movies himself, John Hughes, um, with Matthew Broderick, Mia Sarah, Alan Ruck. Jennifer Grey and some great cameos that we might talk about later, but Ben Stein, Del Close, Louis Anderson, and you know Tiger's Blood himself, Charlie Sheen even shows up. So it's quite the movie. Surprisingly, I did a little research. It only has one award nomination. It was for a Golden Globe for Matthew Broderick. I don't know. I guess it was just the times. Excellent choice. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Ferris Bueller. Larger than life. Blessed with a magical sense of serendipity. He's a model for all those who take themselves too seriously. A guy who knows the value of a day off. Ferris Bueller's Day Off chronicles the events in the day of a rather magical young man, Ferris. Matthew Broderick. One spring day, toward the end of his senior year, Ferris gives in to an overwhelming urge to cut school and head for downtown Chicago with his girl, Mia Sarah, and his best friend, Alan Ruck, to see the sights, experience a day of freedom, and show that with a little ingenuity, a bit of courage, and a red Ferrari, life at 17 can be a joy. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. One man's struggle to take it easy. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So, Ben, I mean, you already told us that this is one of your favorite movies of all time, but why did you choose this for this podcast? Why do you want to discuss it with us? Well, I mean, this seemed like the perfect platform to talk about it, uh, you know, the all 80s movies podcast. So we have to talk about it here. I can't talk about it on mine because we talk about stuff we haven't seen, you know, so I'm never going to get the chance. So I was like, hey, if I get the opportunity to talk about this and I love talking with you guys, like this seems perfect. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it's my favorite movie ever. I really enjoy getting people's reactions when I tell them that, you know, it's kind of, it can be a hit or miss, like really, you know, and people interpret it as like, oh, that's the, you think it's the best movie of all time? Like, I don't think it's the best. I just think it's my favorite. Like, I just, I love it so much. Um, So I'm, yeah, I'm very excited to talk about it with you guys. This is without a doubt the movie I've seen the most, the, the you know, most amount of times in my life. So this is, this is going to be awesome. Glad we can do this for you. So uh, Jason, what do you have for initial thoughts for Ferris Bueller's day off? I, I love, first of all, that bill said, I'm glad we can do this for you. We're, we're like, we're performing a service I for appreciate you. It. By do- uh, yeah, <laughs> we're I'm doing you a grateful. favor. You know that we're doing you a huge <laughs> it's a solid. favor. We're doing a solid. I know. It's like make a wish. You know, this is great. I love and, it. <laughs> no, I'm glad you're so enthusiastic about this because man, so am I. This is how you do it. One hour, 42 minutes, 57 seconds of pure bliss, mm-hmm. Chicago. It's one of the best Chicago movies of all time. I remember how I wanted to be Ferris Bueller at 12 years old when I saw this in the summer of 1986. I remember being immediately thrilled as the Star Wars theme blasted when the Ferrari made the street jump. I had a huge crush on Mia Sara. And by the way, here's an initial thought. I still do. <laughs> oh my goodness, Mia Sara. Cut to 2009. I remember wearing the t-shirt that had the water tower on it that said, Save Ferris. I wore it to a Cubs game in which Alfonso Soriano broke his bat and it almost hit myself and my dad. And this was just after John Hughes had passed. And even though we were in Colorado at a Rockies game and at the Rockies stadium, there were other people there holding up signs, showing their fandom. And I remember how his passing actually really affected me. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and Obviously, John Hughes is uh, near and dear to my heart. 
gosh, this film combined with Back to School coming out back to back in 1986 made me feel better about going to school and the future adventures I'd have with friends in school, high school, college, and beyond. So more initial thoughts. What stood out to me today? Gentlemen, the editing. I'm going to give a shout out to Paul Hirsch, who, by the way, edited a few films you might have heard of. Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Footloose, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I mean, the quick cutting to the music, the great pacing, it feels like it was designed for the young. Like it has this youthful exuberance and just the cutting, the editing. The editing itself has comic timing. So many clever tie-ins and references to Saving Ferris throughout this. As you said, Ben, I mean, you can't talk about John Hughes and his great writing for the coming-of-age teen films. I love little details such as Cameron wearing a Gordie Howe Detroit Red Wings jersey in this. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Detroit Red Wings being the number one rival of the Chicago Blackhawks in the NHL. It only adds to the fact that Cameron is like the antithesis of Ferris. Which leads me to another main initial thought for me after watching this as an adult. Whose movie is this? Is this Ferris Bueller's movie or is it Cameron Fry's? This is just something I was pondering. I would argue, or at least I think you can make a real solid argument that it's Cameron's. Yes, of course, this is Ferris Bueller's world and everyone else just lives in it. But when we watch Ferris Bueller with his clever gadgets, quick wit, magnetic charm, go on his adventure ride, but it's Cameron that has the real character arc. He's the one that begins with a story full of fear and he's relieved of that fear, or at least he's owning it toward the end. Funny enough, there seems like there's another arc, maybe a mini arc, and it belongs to Ferris's sister, Jeannie, played by the wonderful Jennifer Grey, who was a standout on this watch for me. Talk about the perfecting the resting bitch face and the overall sneer. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to know what a sneer looks like, watch Jennifer Grey and Ferris Bueller's <laughs> And her arc culminates in her meeting with Charlie Sheen's character in the police station, where she's letting go of her hate and actually saving Ferris in the end, something she was fighting against all along. Anyway, those are some of my initial thoughts. Lastly, I freaking adore this movie. I'm right there with you, Ben, and I'm, I'm going to assume with Bill, too, here. I don't want to step on his toes, but this movie is everything fun. It actually does have some texture and thoughtfulness, which makes it stand out amongst some of the other coming-of-age teen high school films. It holds up extremely well. I was along for the ride and laughed the entire way. That's what I got. How about you, Bill? Do you have some initial thoughts? Yeah, so my initial thought watching this film was, I would love to see what a day in high school was like for Ferris, because as Grace, Principal Rooney's secretary said, he is popular with everyone. The faculty is sending him flowers. How did that happen? How did he become so popular? <laughs> I want to know that. Um, not that I want to see a movie about it. It would be cool if there's some kind of like maybe documentary. But we know that Ferris has the whole school in the palm of his hands, and we'd never see him step inside the school. Mm -hmm. He never steps on school grounds, but everybody loves him. And he's still connecting with students while he is at home. The fact he just randomly calls and people answer and they just want to talk to him. I just found that so fascinating. This is the ultimate high school fantasy movie. Ditching school with the most attractive girl on campus with your best friend in the coolest car and making your principal look like a doofus in the process. Wonderful stuff. <laughs> Heck yeah. So good. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that aspect of it, of just how much everyone pulls for him. I mean, even at the end when the mom's there with the police chief and he's like, hey, tell Ferris everyone down at the station's pulling for him. It's like, why do all these people know this kid? You know, like, why is the water tower painted with, you know, with all that stuff? Like, it's just, it's so funny. It's a great aspect, I guess, to this film. And honestly, like, as cliche as this will sound, the first time I watched this is when I was skipping school. Um, I was, I was raised by my mom, my aunt and my grandma. Um, and my mom and aunt were obviously at work. My grandma worked part time and she was like, you know what? I'm, I'm really sorry you're feeling sick. 
I think I have a great movie for you. And she put it on for me. I was maybe in elementary school or early middle school. And that's when I realized like I wasn't the person that invented faking sick. Um, you know, I thought I had really pulled something over on my family. It's like, oh, they have no idea. I'm not really sick and I'm just staying home because I don't want to go to school. And then I realized there's this whole movie that's all about that. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. <laughs> um, and it just kind of became tied to that. Like whenever I stayed home from school, I would watch that. It just became like a comfort film. And you know, like you said, later on in life, I went on to like get a film degree, all that kind of stuff. And I could appreciate, like you talked about earlier days, like the editing and all those aspects to it, just the hilarious comedic editing that's put in there. The Star Wars sound that like I recognize, I'm like, whoa, I didn't know you could like put that in another movie. Like, this is so cool. You know, like just all the rules that I thought were being broken just because I had never experienced them before. So I think that is so much about what is my like attachment to this movie is just like, it's my childhood. It's all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, yeah, I, I love this movie so much. I'm really excited to to talk about it with you guys. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. So one thing Jason and I was talking about is seeing the right movie at the right time of your life. And I think what you just described is, you know, staying home from school, it's a reflection of what you're going through at that moment and you just connect mm -hmm. it with it. And that's kind of one of the things I was thinking about too. If I was over 25 years old and I had watched this movie for the first time, would I feel the same way as I yeah. did when I saw it for the first time because I was in high school when I mm -hmm. saw this. So I was like, oh my God, something like this could actually happen. I could actually ditch maybe <laughs> yeah. and, and do all these big adventures. Nothing ever came close, but <laughs> just the thought of it was exciting. Yeah. All right. So let's move into some of our favorite scenes and moments from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Uh, moments can be an Easter egg, a joke, a certain shot, cameo, montage, music, etc. Basically something that wouldn't qualify as an entire scene. And of course, a scene would be a scene from the movie. Self-explanatory. Mm -hmm. So Ben, why don't you start us off? What is one of your favorite scenes or moments from Ferris Bueller's Day Off? So many to choose from. Um, I, I've just got to go with my absolute favorite moment to start out with. And it kind of plays into what we were talking about with the funny editing. Because it's at the beginning of the film as Ferris is trying to talk Cameron into coming over. And they get off the phone and Ferris turns to the camera, breaks the fourth wall. He's like, $20 says Cameron sitting in his car right now debating not whether or not to come over. And then we cut to Cameron just sitting there and him just being like, He'll keep calling me. He'll keep calling me till I come over. This is ridiculous. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. And then him just hitting that seat for me, like just that moment right there. I could just watch that on a loop forever. I love that so much. And even when he goes out to the back and starts jumping around, I know I'm pushing the the terms of a moment here versus a scene, but that is just like one of my favorite things in this entire film. I, I just love that cut there. Just how well they know each other. The Ferris knows what Cameron's doing right now, but the Cameron also knows like he's relentless. He's going to get me to go over there. I might as well just go. Like I can't fight this. Uh, I think it really just in there just shows how tight and connected they are in their friendship. Wow. What a great call. I got to jump in there. Sorry, Bill, because I couldn't agree more. I am laughing out loud the entire time. I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. I'll go. Shit. You know, <laughs> with the starting, when he's starting the car and he's like, God damn it. Just revving it. It's so relatable. Have we not all been there where this is immediately Ferris is kind of forcing him like even just over the telephone, he's not even present physically, but getting Cameron out of his comfort zone. And he knows he's about to go outside of his comfort zone. And we've all been there. It's like, oh, I mean, I know I'm going to go, but I don't want to go. And I don't have to go. No, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go, but I'm going to go. I have to, I'm going to go. Damn it. And that's, we've all been there. That's a, yeah. It's just, man, laugh out loud scene. Good call. Or moment, I should say. Moment and or scene. Yeah. Yeah, because I almost put that down myself because just listening to Cameron have that conversation in the car, I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, how many times have I done that? 
where I've gotten mm-hmm. in the car. And I'm like, why the hell am I going to this? Why am I doing? No, I'm going back <laughs> in the house. No, I got to go. They, I told him I was going to come. So yes, <laughs> that, that scene is way too relatable for me sometimes. Without a doubt. Jason, you got a favorite scene or moment? I do. I'm going to go a little bit outside of the box because I, I'm going to, I have to concur with Ben. I'm sure you built this movie for an hour and 42 minutes and 57 seconds is just one wonderful scene and or moment after another. It literally is rapid fire. So we probably, well, I know we won't cover everything on this particular episode. We may have to have Ben back for parts two and three and four and five because it really is chock full. So I was trying to go a little bit outside of the box because I think maybe some scenes are a little bit more obvious than others. I don't know. But what I'm going with here is what I'm calling the bathroom scene at Chez Louis, Mm. the fancy French restaurant. Now, at this point in the film... We know that our group of friends, they're already on their adventure. They're downtown Chicago. We have Ferris Bueller. We have Sloan Peterson. We have Cameron Fry, all wonderful friends. Uh, and they've used their wit in order to get a table at this fancy French restaurant. And at one point, Ferris Bueller is taking a bathroom break. And it's one of those fancy bathrooms that has an attendant to help you should you need mm-hmm. anything. I remember it like the first time going into one of those bathrooms. It's extremely awkward. You don't know what... Why is he sitting here in the bathroom? <laughs> that, that's got to be awkward <laughs> yeah. for him, much yeah. less me. What is this guy doing here? And, you know, they're there in case you need anything. Sometimes the attendant will dispense soap into your hands or hand you a towel after you wash your hands. They present a bowl of mints after you're done with your business. But Ferris is washing his hands. And again, here, uh, as he's looking into the mirror, he breaks the fourth wall, speaking to the audience. And he says the following. I used to think that my family was the only one that had weirdness in it. That used to worry me. Then I saw how Cameron's family functioned. His home life is really twisted. That's why he's sick all the time. It really bothers him. He's the only guy I know who feels better when he's sick. If I had to live in that house, I'd probably pray for a disease too. The place is like a museum. It's very beautiful and very cold, and you're not allowed to touch anything. Can you appreciate what it must have been like for Cameron to be in that joint as a baby? So that's how it goes. And it's ba- it's a monologue slash speech that he gives. And I remember this scene affecting me as a kid when I saw it, because it was a little bit of a break from the comedy, I suppose, even though Ferris is always being quite charming. Uh, we see that Ferris has an understanding of why Cameron is the way he is. This is his best friend since at least fifth grade that's been established. Mm-hmm. And he knows him like the back of his hand. So... He knows that Cameron's a loner. He's a bit quirky. He was shut off or slightly even depressed. And he has a real sympathy for him and he wants to do right by him. And we now as an audience have sympathy for him as well. And this is great because this scene is intercut with Cameron, who's still back at the table with Sloan. And Cameron's (laughs) chowing down as we see some of his quirky eating habits. Like he's not used to this sort of scenario and he's annoying a gentleman at the table behind him. And then he actually finds some pleasure in it. He coughs really loud at one point. And it's as if like he finds some uh, like freedom in rebelling, probably against another rich guy or the rich folks that are just like his father, whom he's wanting to rebel against, but can't. The bottom line is like we just we get a really nice insight into who Cameron is as a character and how what uh, I guess Ferris is trying to do for him and trying to get him to become somewhat free. Mm-hmm. Uh, free from his fear and f- get him outside of his comfort zone, as I kind of mentioned based on the scene you were breaking down there, Ben. But also it's great at the end of the scene because uh, Ferris, when he's leaving the bathroom, he does this one thing that I always just thought was 
kind of funny when he looks over to the attendant, like he's back in the scene and he's addressing the person in the scene and he says, thank you. And then he goes, mint. <laughs> also another month when he says, when he talks about the, the Ferrari and he says, it's so choice. If you have the means, I highly recommend picking one up. Uh, there's just great moments in the scene, but at the very end when he's leaving, great moment because his father happens to be in the stall and comes out. The timing is just as Ferris leaves, his dad comes out and we're like, oh boy, he could be in trouble here if his dad catches him playing hooky from school, mm. hanging out at a fancy restaurant downtown. But anyway, yeah, a different scene, but that's that's always touched me, I guess, in a way. So, And I think those are honestly like bookended. Because again, like even getting the table is a great scene. Oh yeah, you know, you're the sausage king of Chicago. It's like, yep, that's me. You know, <laughs> like that whole phone call scene. But honestly, like for your scene, I've tried for over three decades now, and I can't. But like that raindrop noise, whatever he makes with his mouth as he's just sitting there bored. It's oh, just yeah. the little stuff like that that I love because you know no one else in this restaurant is doing anything like that, and he could not care less. He's just in his own world. So I think that's that's an awesome scene. I I love everything about that. Yeah, Jason went a little out of the box on this one. Nice call. Yeah, yeah. But the thing was, it just reminds me because I'm sure there's probably people listening going, oh, my God, of all the moments you could pick, you're talking about the bathroom scene where he's talking like in the mirror and to the audience. But you're right. Like, because the, the scene previous is hilarious. Snooty, snooty, snotty, snotty. I mean, come on. It's like ridiculously funny. But this, I think I appreciated that scene because of the insight to the relationship. And this is, again, a little bit of an extra layer that this film has that I think some of the other uh, films of this genre sometimes are missing or gloss over. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, I know we're two for two on this now, but I'm, I wonder if this is the first movie I ever saw that broke the fourth wall like that. I wonder if that's part of also what I really liked about it. Cause a lot of that humor kind of comes through in him addressing the viewer or the audience and then going back into it. But I just love that two of these we're two for two now on these fourth wall breaking scenes for sure. That's funny. All right. Uh, for me, my favorite scene I'm going to pick is basically the plot to get Sloan out of school. So uh, at this point in the film, Ferris has finally convinced Cameron to come to his house. But now we need to get Ferris's girlfriend, who's uh, Sloan Peterson. And the first step they put in motion is that they call the school to let the school know that poor Sloan's grandmother has died. And we see the nurse coming down the hall and she's all holding her hands and she seems all upset. And what's great about this scene is that as soon as the nurse appears in the classroom, Sloane knows it's Ferris that's trying to get her out. And that's just like, because she's just putting on her jacket and she's just like, okay, I'm going to be leaving any minute now. And she gets pulled out of the class and the nurse gives her the news, the unfortunate death in the family. And Sloane tries to play it off the best that she can. And then we go to the principal's office and we meet, you know, Principal Rooney and Principal Rooney just cannot stand Ferris Bueller. He's just the bane of his existence. And Ferris is out, and he wants to catch Ferris in the act somehow. And he realizes with Sloane being out, and Sloane and Ferris are boyfriend girlfriend. He knows this is a, a scheme, and he's gonna yeah. he's gonna get this scheme. So what he's gonna do is he's gonna hopefully call Sloane's family first to confirm about the death. But before he can make the phone call, Mister Peterson calls Rooney, <laughs> and. They're having conversation and Rudy's not falling for it. He knows it's Ferris and us as the audience all believe it's Ferris. And we're like, oh, crap, the scheme's not going to work at all. And Rooney starts telling Mr. Peterson, well, yeah, we'll let Sloan out of school as soon as we see the body. And you hear Mr. Peterson, the other day, the, 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 what do you mean? the what are, you, what are you talking about, Rooney? What are you talking about? So 
Rooney's all smug. He's like, ah, I got Ferris now. There's no way that he's going to be able to get out of this one. And then Grace, secretary, gets a call on line two. It's Ferris Bueller. What? Whoa. We thought this was Ferris on the phone. But Rooney takes the other line, and it's Ferris. And Ferris calls Principal Rooney and say, hey, you know, I'm out sick today. Really sorry about that. You can make sure that my sister can bring back my homework. I really appreciate it. And quickly hangs up. And then Rooney is, oh, shit. He realizes he is talking to Mr. Peterson, and we see that he's still on line one, and the line is flashing, and he has no idea what the hell he's going to do right now. So he clicks on the line, tries to start apologizing, and we find out as an audience now that it was not Ferris that was playing Mr. Peterson. It was Cameron who was impersonating Mr. Peterson, and at this point, he calls Rooney, you're an asshole, Rooney, an asshole, which I love, (laughs) and... As Mr. Peterson makes his demands that he wants Sloan brought into the front of the school, and then he's going to come and pick her up. It's just a great scene. And then we see that uh, Rooney comes out with Sloan, and he's trying to console her. And you can see she's just like, shut the fuck up, okay? (laughs) I just want to get out. I'm just waiting for my ride. I know it's going to be Ferris. And it's this great shot, too, because we see the front of the school, and this bus drives by. And as soon as the bus passes, it's... Ferris in Cameron's dad's Ferrari, and he's standing out, and he's like, come along, dear, come along. And, of course, Salone comes down, and they make out, and Rudy's like, well, that's kind of weird. But he doesn't think <laughs> anything of it. But then Salone gets in the car. They pull out of the parking lot, and they are on their way for their big adventure, the three of them. Love it. That's awesome. That honestly uh, was going to be my pick in just a second, um, specifically the the moment where Ferris and Cameron are talking on the phone, you know, and he's like, have her out front, or he hits him, and they have that confrontation, and just Cameron's whole, like, you made me make a phony phone call to Edward Rooney, like, the man could squish my nuts into oblivion, you know, like, I, I just yeah. love all that. That whole scene is is so perfect, and then, yeah, when, when he's like, give a kiss for daddy, he's like, oh, so that's how it is in that family, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. I just love it, and he just, like, shrugs his shoulders, like, all right, I guess that's what it is, so it's, uh yeah, that's a wonderful scene, for sure. Yeah, man. Great, great choice. That entire sequence is absolutely loaded with just wonderful performances. We get Edie McClurg. The great Edie McClurg is Grace, is the secretary. I mean, in the beginning, what uh, there's, I don't want to step on trivia, but I mean, she did her own hair for this to get that big, (laughs) that kind of throwback poof, the bouffant like poof. And she's pulling pencils out of her hair because it can hold that many pencils. And that was improv, I think, a little bit, or they came up with that last minute, her and John Hughes. But regardless, she's wonderful. Uh, Jeffrey Jones as Ed Rooney, he is just struggling in this once he's been, you know, once he finds out that, oh, maybe I am talking to the real Mr. Peterson. But Alan Ruck as Cameron doing the voice work, you're absolutely right, Bill, when he doesn't. And if I could, what is it? Frankly, you're an asshole. I can't even do it. You did it much better than me. But the way he changes his voice, it's a really comedic, very funny voice. It's very Walter Mathal. That's what it reminds me of. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good call. And Ben, you nailed it because this is where, like, I may harp on this a little bit more during this podcast is the relationship aspect. Because this film really is also a movie about friendship and what happens in high school and what is potentially going to happen or not happen after high school once you move on. From high school. And at this point, we can see how close they are. Like you said, Ben, when <laughs> Cameron kind of screws up in with making the plans to bring Sloan out of the school so they can come and get her, and they kind of put themselves in a bind, and Ferris knows it and slaps the phone out of his hand <laughs> and then ends up kicking him in the butt at one point. And of course, 
then literally Cameron's butt hurt and they have a moment where Cameron's going to leave and they're in a little bit of a tiff. But as guys do, they get over it really quick and kind of like, look, I didn't mean it. Let's work on, you know, do this together. And then freaking Ferris uses it against Cameron. He's like, well, you, you did kind of screw up, didn't you? So that means you're going to have to now go get your dad's Ferrari in order to pull this off. Oh, man. He leverages it against Cameron. It's just, it's great In the stuff. coolest garage, too, of all time. I love that garage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like oh, what yeah. it overlooks everything. Yeah, that is awesome. All right, Ben, it's your turn. Favorite moment or scene? Uh, I'm so I'm going to do like a quick cheat. I have a scene that I really want to break down, but I just have a moment that I just, I want to shout out because it's another one of my favorites really quickly. You're the guest. So go ahead. Yeah. So it's going to be a quick one. Um, but I love when Rooney goes to the pizza place. He thinks he's confronting Ferris and gets the soda in his face. And as he's walking up to like the, whatever, where you order the Cubs game is on and he's, he walks up. He's like, Oh, what's the score? The guy's like zero, zero. Who's winning? <laughs> he just kind of looks at him. He's like the bears. Like I love, cause he just knows how little That's Rooney awesome. is paying attention. He's like, I'm going to tell you our football team is winning and see if you're catching on to this at all. It's a really quick moment, but I just, I love it so much. Like it's nothing, nothing who's winning. So yeah, I just had to shout that out really quick. That's just one of my favorites. Um, But the scene, as much as I wanted to stay away from like just some of the more well-known everything scenes in this movie, I've got to talk about the running home, like the end of the movie. Like it's just one, I think the most iconic moments and scenes from this film is that entire sequence running through the backyards and he says goodbye to Sloan realizes what time it is and he's got to take off and we don't know exactly what's going on but the music kind of starts to pick up and he's running through running through yards you know running through houses like the one of the first ones he sees that guy's barbecuing and he grabs his beer you know and then runs in the house he's like dinner's ready and just like keeps going and then the next house uh there's someone sitting in the front room he's like no no don't get up <laughs> he's like keeps running through there's another yard with two girls that are sunbathing which is funny though because they are faced away from the sun you know <laughs> there's like a complete shadow but i love he runs by them but then he's like he comes back he's like hey i'm ferris let's go <laughs> you know so i really enjoyed that but that's intercut with dad and mom also coming home and genie with mom so the dad sequence is so great. He gets stuck behind this old woman who can't, there's no way she's seeing over the top of the steering wheel here. And she's just weaving back and forth down the road. And the dad from his car is just like waving her over, which kind of became adopted in my family. So whenever we were behind someone slow, we would just do that scoot over, you know, I, I just, I really enjoyed that scene. And then to speak, Jason, to your point earlier from the bathroom scene, like there's a point where his dad is literally running next to, or driving next to him running and he doesn't catch on at first. It's like, oh, this dad really just is clueless. He has real, no idea what's going on here. Yeah. yeah. But Ferris notices it and then, you know, cuts behind him and cuts through a yard again. I think that's the one that leads to the uh, trampoline jump with the little girl, which is obviously just one of the best slow motion moments ever. But then Jeannie and mom also see Ferris running, or Jeannie does at least, and she's going to beat him. You know, she's going to catch him and what he's doing because she's had enough of his shit. Uh, so she starts running stop signs and mom's papers go everywhere and the cops pull them over. And so that whole race, like it's just, it turns into like a literal race against everyone, not just a race against time anymore. And I just think it's such a fantastic way to cap off this movie and just how far Ferris is willing to push it, you know, to enjoy the day off and just kind of how you fall in shit and come out smelling like roses. Like, I think that's Ferris Bueller, you know, he's just like somehow he's able to make it work. Uh, he gets into the back and sees that the key is missing and Rooney he's there he's like got you you know so he thinks he's busted he's worried whatever and then genie opens the door and he's like oh it's so nice of you to like bring him home like he shouldn't be walking that far 
by the way, you left your wallet in our kitchen and throws it, you know, to the dog, which like they've had their experience throughout earlier in the movie. So you just see Rooney's just like heart sink. And again, it's like, it's another small line, but it's just one of my favorites because mom and dad meet in the front, hug each other. She's like, Oh, Jeannie, like I lost the Vermont deal. We got a ticket, all that kind of stuff. And dad's response is, I think we should shoot her. And they just like walk inside. And I just, I love that line so much. Like, obviously it's like played like a a joke between them, but I just think it's so funny that that's his response. Like we should shoot her, (laughs) but that whole everything there. And that's like a super long scene, but I just think it obviously like caps off the whole movie. I I love again, like this is, uh, as we spoke to earlier, like the editing, the musical um, cutting to all that kind of stuff, the tension building all that. um, And just how it all comes to a head basically with Ferris caught almost. Um, but then obviously Jeannie saves the day and that leads to Ferris running upstairs and the ball from the ball game, you know, saves the day, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, he's able to, to make it all work, but I just, I had to talk about that scene for sure. I think that had to get mentioned. I, I feel like it's a scene that people know about, even if they haven't seen the movie before. I think they even did a, a spoof on it in uh, some commercial with Joe Keery a couple of years ago, That's but it right. yeah. uh, feels pretty well known, but I just, I, I had to talk about that scene. I love it. Well, Ben, while you were describing that scene, I wanted to like chime in about 15 times and say, oh, but, and you nailed everything. Like you, you just covered it all already. Cause I was going to be like, oh, I love that moment when he turns around to the, you know, he's running his, his ass off and he passes the girls in the beginning and then turns around all calmly. Like, Hi, my name's Ferris. <laughs> you know, just so it's just so iconic. What an incredible scene. Thanks for breaking that down, man. I'm glad personally you brought it up because it has to be addressed. I mean, it's the elephant in the room. It's one of the most iconic scenes. You just say it's the Ferris running through the yard scene and everybody goes, mm-hmm. oh, hell yeah. I mean, yeah. the fact that you brought up the probably for me, the sneakiest good quote in the entire film is from the dad when he said, I think we should shoot her. You know, just so <laughs> matter of factly, it surprises me every time and it's hilarious. So, yeah, speaking of like the editing, the music cues throughout Especially when Jeannie pulls up, you know, hand, holds up the wallet and we see Ed Rooney's face. He's like the oh shit moment. Yeah. Great music cues, the way his eyes bulge. And she's got now, instead of a sneer, a smirk on her face. Mm. Jennifer Grey, so good. So funny in this movie. Well done, man. Well done. What a great scene. Yeah, great call. Just so fun, so tense. So many moving parts going together at the same time. And, and then it all culminates in that moment where you think, Ferris made it. And then mm-hmm. you see Rooney's foot come down. You're like, oh, shit. How's he going to get <laughs> out of that? And just Jeannie just soaking up the moment like, yes, my brother's going to get busted. Mm-hmm. But then I think she's just so satisfied that that happened. She decides that, you know what? He is my brother. I'm going to go out and save him. I love that. That's too, a really, I, that's I did a really not see call. that coming. Yeah, that, that we cut to her inside the kitchen listening to it. She's like, I'm going to let him sweat a little bit. Like, I'm going to save him, but he's got to feel this once at least you know so that's a great call i I left that out but that's a that's a wonderful moment there for sure all right jason your turn what's your next favorite scene or moment from ferris well i for a change here i'm gonna go with one of the popular favorites i think and i'm calling this scene simply the parade it is the von steuben day parade which is a german american parade this is something i found out my research which explains the dancing german girls it's held at the end of september i'm, I'm going to give you a little history lesson here von steuben day is a holiday celebrating the prussian-born baron friedrich von steuben who arrived in the united states as a volunteer offering his services to general george washington in the american revolutionary war there you go i hope everyone learned something today 
Yes. Learned something my own podcast. Love it. (laughs) By the way, when the parade sequence starts, which I like to think is when our band of fellows here, Sloan, Cameron and Ferris are in the cab and uh, they're thinking about going home. You can see a, a movie theater in the background. You can see the movie theater marquee, and it has on it, it has Godzilla 85 and Teen Wolf on it, oh. which are the films showing at the theater, which is great, because it's a little bit of foreshadowing. Broderick obviously would many, many years later star in a Godzilla film. I thought that was interesting. But Ferris and Sloan and Cameron, as I said, are in the back of a taxi cab, and Cameron says they should go home at this point. It's been kind of a long day. They've been around town, and uh, he feels like they should get their Ferrari back home, his dad's car. So Ferris says, well, no, wait, there's still a few hours left. They've got till 6 p.m. But Cameron says, hurtfully, that they haven't seen anything good today. And Ferris is speechless when Cameron sees Mr. Bueller, speaking of the dad, Ferris's father, in the cab next to them. Another near miss here. Ferris's father looks over, does a double take. Then when he looks back, he only sees Sloane sitting there in her dark sunglasses making suggestive faces at him, which I love. Oh, I love BSR. Anyway, when it comes back to the scene, what I'm calling the parade scene, Cameron and Sloan are are walking along the parade route amongst the parade goers and onlookers uh, by themselves. There's no Ferris. Cameron's all mad, thinking Ferris has disappeared on him. Uh, Well, all of a sudden, they hear a voice come over the speakers, and they realize it's Ferris Bueller on the mic, who says, I'd like to dedicate this song to a young man who doesn't think he's seen anything good today. Cameron Fry, this one's for you. So Cameron and Sloan, when they hear his voice over this, the loudspeakers, they can recognize it. Slowly, they turn around to see it is Ferris on top of one of the main parade floats, surrounded by these beautiful dancing girls dressed in Lederhosen costumes with like skirts. And he's on the microphone, lip syncing to Danka Shane, which, by the way, this blows me away, is the Wayne Newton version from 1963. That's Wayne Newton. Seeing that with the high, like pitched voice, he's obviously very young when he recorded. Oh, yeah. Is it, doesn't that blow you away? When I've told yes. people that, they're like, that's not Wayne Newton. That's a girl or it's somebody's. No, that's Wayne Newton. He has a beautiful voice and he was very young when he recorded it. So they start yelling at him, that being uh, Cameron and Sloan. They're yelling at Ferris to get off the float, but Ferris is just going to do his thing. So they leave him alone for a minute and we cut to Cameron and Sloan who've decided to go for a little stroll. And it's a very famous area, downtown Chicago. While Ferris is having his fun, I kind of like this dialogue because of the simplicity. You get Cameron saying, yeah, as long as I've known him, everything works for him. There's nothing he can't handle. I can't handle anything. School, parents, the future. Ferris can do anything. I don't know what I'm going to do. This is Sloan replying, college? He's like, yeah, to do what? And she says, what are you interested in? Nothing. She's like, me neither. Cameron just gives up and decides to yell after Ferris. You're crazy. And Sloan says, what do you think Ferris is going to do? And he says, he's going to be a fry cook on Venus, which is <laughs> hilarious. And Sloan, she hugs him. Cameron, that is. And I don't know. It's not like it's mind blowing dialogue, but it's natural. And it's just these high schoolers wondering what they're going to do with their lives. And it's Cameron comparing his life to Ferris's. And he realizes he can't do that. And he's out of his control. He can't do anything about that. And all he can do is appreciate Ferris for who he is. And they look back to the parade. And now Ferris is kicking it up a notch with the Beatles version of Twist and Shout. And it's just pure awesomeness and good times. We see the marching band join in with the horns. The girls are dancing. We see shots of construction workers on scaffolding dancing. We get a group of African-Americans doing choreographed dance on a staircase, which is awesome. We see people from all walks of life joining in the singing. 
There's cheers and balloons. The speaking of Ferris's dad just kind of coming in at random moments and not and just being oblivious to that fact that his mm-hmm. son is right there in front of him. We see his Ferris's dad looking down on the parade from an office window of a high rise and he starts dancing to the music. I love the dancing girls. They're they're super hot and they're whipping their skirts up and all around and all over the place. And Ferris finishes with a flourish and the crowd goes wild as he raises his hand, the mic in the air. And one of the best things, and this is just great editing and it's just smart. Cuts to silence. It's Ed Rooney back at the door of the Bueller house, completely in tatters. And a delivery man, the cameo by Louis Anderson, has just dropped off some flowers, which Rooney receives. And there's a get well message for Ferris in the flowers. It's just this really hilarious juxtaposition between this wonderful celebration in the parade and Ferris just doing his thing to then the silence and poor Ed Rooney suffering at the door of the Bueller house. It's just one of the all-time feel-good scenes. It's placed perfectly in the film, and it fires on all cylinders, two of the great songs. And you just want to be Ferris in the moment. Being adored by everyone, you can't help but feel the music and the energy. Uh, it made me feel so good watching it again today. Yeah, that parade scene is just an all-time classic without a doubt. And just seeing how everyone, it, I, it, it kind of symbolizes, I guess, obviously, like how much the community loves Ferris, you know, it kind of seems like that. We talked about earlier with the, the police station and all that kind of stuff. He's just able to to pull a crowd together. Um, and yeah, it's just one of the most exciting moments, I think, that I, I don't remember exactly. I mean, I could look up in the trivia, but I don't believe it was planned for the movie. I think, right, the parade just happened to be going on. And so they like asked like the next day if they could get a float in there to shoot that, which I think is, is super cool. So yeah, I, that's a wonderful scene. Oh man, if that's true, that's amazing. What a stroke of luck. What a like happy accident. That's amazing. Know, right? Yeah, definitely one of the most iconic scenes of the movie. I mean, every time I see a parade, that scene just pops in my head. Or anytime you ever hear that song, Donka Shane. Oh yeah. yeah. Immediately. It's just a trigger response. Yeah. Fair speaker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many times I've been singing it in my head since I've watched the movie. <laughs> I can't get it out. Yeah. All right. So for me, we'll go a moment here just because when I saw this the first time, it was a, I had to stop, rewind and watch it again because I was laughing so hard and I missed what was going on. Like we said, Rudy is determined to bust Ferris because he knows he's not sick. And so he shows up at Ferris's house and he's been trying to get in and he's been very unsuccessful. And now Jeannie has left school. And she wants to know what's going on with Ferris, too. So she drives home to the house, goes in the house to go upstairs to check on Ferris and sees that Ferris has put a dummy in there to take his place. So she's super pissed that she knows that Ferris is not in the house. Now, Rooney has seen this as an opportunity to finally get into the house and see that Ferris is not there. So he's going to get Ferris, too. And Rooney comes in through the front door. Jeannie hears that someone's coming in the front door. And she thinks it's Ferris, so now she's coming downstairs, and Rooney now hears someone that's in the house, and he thinks it's Ferris, and there's this great scene where they're both coming around the corner, Rooney's in the kitchen, Jeannie's in the hall, and we hear Jeannie go, Ferris, and then Rooney goes, Bueller, and (laughs) Jeannie jumps out to surprise her brother, not realizing it's Rooney who then jumps out to surprise Jeannie. And Jeannie freaks out and rapid fire kicks to the face. (laughs) I was laughing so hard. Not the fact that her foot could actually reach his face, but watching Jeffrey Jones head snap back the way it does the three times. I almost beat my (laughs) pants. I had to stop the movie and watch it again because it was so funny. And that was the first time I watched it. I just love that scene. 
It was just such a great moment. And she just flat out knocks him out. He just hits the kitchen floor hard. And then she runs upstairs to call the cops. Mm-hmm. Makes me laugh every time. Just the way the foot comes in and just crack, crack, crack. <laughs> One of my favorite moments in the movie. Man, I'm laughing as you're describing it and I'm thinking of it. I guess there was a little editing trickery talking about the editing once again, because initially Jennifer Grey only kicks Ed Rooney in the face once and they added the extra two kicks. Mm. So it was bang, 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 which made it funnier. And then speaking of the cutting, immediately as she screams and goes running the other way, it's quick cuts back and forth with Rooney falling over, hitting the floor, cut to her running up the stairs, cut to him his head hitting the floor or something like that, her going into her room and then cut to his feet, like spreading apart. And it's just, and you think about it, had it been shot like straight, if that's a poor way to say it, but you know what I mean? Without the fancy cutting back and forth, would it have been as funny? Absolutely not. It's just smartly done, but it's a hilarious scenario. Like I said, Ferris Bueller. (laughs) Gotcha. Aha! (laughs) She kicks kicks the crap out of him. I love that moment so much. And like you just said, Jason, like the thing I think about with that scene is the first shot of Rooney hitting the floor. And I think it's just like his feet that we see he's, as he's just like falling down, you know? And yeah, just yes, like the like yes. cross cut with Jeannie running upstairs and all of that. Um, and then I think that's where like his wallet falls out or something along those lines in there. But that's such a great scene. And also just the whole, both of them just saying the full name of Ferris Bueller, obviously, like just it's so smart how they, they wrote that in there. Yes. All right, so let's move on to our Swiss cheese and complaint department. And why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because all this this movie may be delicious. It certainly has holes. What plot holes, bloopers, or general complaints would you like to file with our complaint department? Bill, why don't you start us off this time? So my first complaint is just with the parents. God, they are mm. so oblivious. So the movie starts off with Ferris faking that he's sick. And it's so obvious that he's faking that he's sick, but his parents are just totally eating this up. Were you not kids at one point? Did you not pull these (laughs) same tricks? How are you falling for this? And they just seem oblivious to everything that goes on in Ferris's life. Maybe that's why he can get away with all this stuff. They must be so job focused that they are neglecting their kids. And it is showing right there. I mean, they can't be that dumb. They got nice houses. They got nice jobs. Man, just another 80s bad parents who just do not pay attention to their kids. Drives us insane. I don't know whose parents are worse. Matthew Broderick's parents in this movie or his parents from War Games. It's it's a toss-up, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) They're just as bad. That's awesome. That's great. Ben, do you have a complaint you would like to file? I mean, in my heart, no. You know, this movie is perfect. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I know sometimes it's really hard for us to come up with stuff for this. Already you're like, Bill, how dare you? That's (laughs) a great piece of perfection. As I've gotten older, I think the biggest plot hole or, you know, whatever is just how much stuff they're able to accomplish in essentially nine hours. They go to... We assume an entire baseball game. So there's like three hours of it. You know, we have the museum, the lunch and all this kind of stuff. I mean, at best, we're working from eight to six, something along those lines. You have like 10 hours at most. And just the the amount of things they're able to accomplish is obviously beyond belief. I guess that's like the biggest thing. If you really break it down, whatever, it's obviously nothing I thought about when I first saw it. And it's nothing that I really care about. But when I step back and look at it, like it's kind of absurd. The amount of stuff that they're able to do here, this is nuts. But it's all for the you know better of the entertainment and stuff. But yeah, I guess that would be my my one complaint. 
Yeah, I always love poking holes in the timeline. Like, okay, so if they had to go to oh, yeah. the stadium and then go to this museum, how long was that going to take? And then blah, blah, blah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I was thinking the same thing, but I'm like, oh, I'm not going to get into that. I'm both. I'll, I'll leave it alone <laughs> this time. I'll leave it alone this time. But it always well, goes through my mind when I'm watching it. You're a better man than I, Bill, because I didn't leave it alone at all. Ben, oh, you got it? I saved this for one of my questions. I wrote it all out. I was like, let's figure this damn thing out together. Let's do it in nice. real time. Okay. But we probably don't have time for it, but we can try. My question was, do Ferris, Cameron, and Sloan have enough time to do all that they do throughout the day and get home by 6 p.m.? So I wrote this down. If we think that they pick up Sloan from school, let's say by 9 a.m., Yeah. right? We're, we're probably thinking 9 to 6, right? Like you said, Ben, it's about... Nine hours from nine to six. So something like that. Yeah. I'm going to give them a little credit here and say that they're kind of hauling ass everywhere. Let's say their drive downtown from the school takes about 40 to 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. I lived in a suburb and that's about how long it took for me to get to downtown with no traffic. So 40 minutes to get downtown, they go to the Sears Tower. I say, let's take, that's 45 minutes. By the way, that's a tour and you got to wait in line and you go up the elevator and you do the thing. So I'm going to say 45 minutes at best. Then they go to the stock exchange. Let's say they're hanging out there for a little bit, having a little nice discussion about marriage. And Mm -hmm. uh, Cameron says, yeah, no, you don't want to get married. Look at my parents. So let's say that's about a half an hour, 40 minutes. Then they go to Shea Louis. That's about 90 minutes. Let's figure for lunch, hour and a half to get sat and to eat and go through the three courses, et cetera. It gets a nice dessert, maybe. They go to the Art Institute. That's got to be an hour. You go to a museum, at least. You're going to stay for at least maybe an hour. Yeah. Oh, and I just skipped the Cubs game. Before they go to the Art Institute, they go to the Cubs game. And here's what I'm, that's that's the big one, right? Because a game lasts for about three hours. Let's say they go for only a couple of innings, spend 10, 15 bucks, get seats in the bleachers. And then, uh, like I said, to go to the Art Institute, they are in the parade, the parade sequence, like him getting up there doing the whole thing. That's got to be a half an hour. Then they go back to Cameron's house for an hour. The drive back, by the way, is another 40 minutes. They hang out at Cameron's house for an hour. He goes catatonic. He breaks down and lets it all out. And then they're back. Ferris is dropping Sloan off at her house, and it's five minutes to six. And he's got five minutes to make the yard run. So... Ladies and gentlemen, I guess we won't, we don't have time to break it down here right now, but <laughs> if you can rewind this segment and break it down for us, add up the minutes and let us know if this is even possible by any stretch of the imagination. I added it up and it was about 10 hours that they were there. Yeah. There's just no way you do it from nine to six, unless you're only at the ball game for one inning maybe, or you're just That's flying the big, through the museum. Yeah. yeah. I, I think know. the ball games, the how long were they there? That's the biggest variable for sure. But yeah. Yeah, I agree. Here's a quick complaint. I, that, you know, this was in Bill. This is such a great scene. It was one of your favorite scenes. But that kiss between Sloan and what's supposed to be her father, Mr. Peterson, who we know is actually Ferris Bueller, they're full on making out. <laughs> and it's a hilarious line that Rooney has. So that's how it is in their family, mm-hmm. which is a great payoff. But no way does he not bust. <laughs> There's no way that you're going... Oh, I'm like, oh, okay, that's Ferris Bueller. That's her boyfriend making out with her, not her dad. <laughs> yes. That's just a complaint. No, I agree with that. Too. There's no way. <laughs> Bill, do you have another complaint, my friend? I have another one. Did they break into someone's house to go in that pool? Are they breaking and entering <laughs> right now? I don't think it's one of their houses. I guess not. You know what? I assumed it was. I initially assumed it was Cameron, but right. when Cameron. That's what on. I thought. Because I mean, then afterward, when he comes out of his comatose, like his catatonic state, She's still got the wet hair and stuff. They're just, and they're outside the uh, showroom garage. 
uh, mm. having that conversation when Cameron was like, well, I was just, I was out of it and I went into this different space. And the funny part where Sloan asks him if he was actually watching her change, mm-hmm. which is pretty funny. So I, I assume that was all at Cameron's house. Okay. I thought maybe they so did some break and entering. Yeah. It's not clearly established. Yeah. At first, to be honest, Bill, I thought that was Sloan's house. I thought they went to Sloan's house because it felt like a different location. Mm-hmm. Right. But then I was like, no, if the scenes happen back to back where they get out of the pool and they know that Cameron was kind of faking it, in that follow-up scene is outside of Cameron's garage, that all has to happen at Cameron's house. It's mm. a good call. My I thought. always assumed he broke in somewhere. They just went to someone. But yeah, it's a great call. Oh, yeah. All right, you can. Uh, well, that's two, great. Two out of three cool. of us think <laughs> breaking in. I mean, just given the day, it's like I don't know. They probably just went to someone's house. Like we're gonna use it, but I think I think you're spot on with that. Well, that would fall more in line though too with Ferris's behavior, right? And yeah. his, the way he his carefree, like he's gonna pull another stunt and get away with it. Exactly. Because even if they did caught, he'd charm his way out of it. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of that leads into my second complaint, more is just something that's always been a question for me is what would have happened if Abe Froman had shown up at the restaurant? Do we just assume like he skipped his lunch reservation, whatever, which obviously like happens all the time. But that's one thing. It's like, man, I, I'm curious what would have happened if he had to be confronted with like, okay, you're not the sausage king of Chicago. <laughs> like this guy is. Um, but as you said, it's just another example of like Ferris getting away with everything. But that was one thing I've almost always think about when I see it. it's like, man, I really just wish Abe would show up. <laughs> just, I just want to see how he, <laughs> I know he'd get out of it. You know what I mean? Like that's who we know the character, but it's like, how would this happen? So that's the only like kind of plot hole thing. Again, like I know I'm grasping for straws here. It's like talking bad about one of my kids or something like, I, I don't know exactly, but that's one thing I think about for sure. No, that is a good call. Why doesn't he I show I thought up? about that too. It would yeah. be funny if he had Cameron make another phone call to the Sausage King and be like, hey, man, i got to break up our lunch date. Exactly that. That would have been perfect. Jason, any more complaints? Yeah, I got a nitpicky complaint, and it actually okay. kind of ties in with my previous Sloan making out with Ferris complaint when he's posing as her father, Mr. Peterson. Uh, before that scene, uh, which was also broken down by you, Bill, which is, I mean, it's part of it. Just, oh, man, it's all so funny. When Cameron's on the phone with Rooney, and Cameron's impersonating Sloane's father, Mr. Peterson. Ferris Bueller is already dressed in a suit, mm. which ends up being all too convenient because he himself will have to portray the wealthy Mr. Peterson in the next scene. But yeah. that plan hadn't quite followed through the way because what happens is Cameron makes a mistake on the phone, which forces them to go in the Ferrari and and have to impersonate Mr. Peterson. But it was all too convenient because if you're following me, Ferris Bueller was already in the suit. Mm -hmm. Why is he dressed in a suit if he didn't think he was going to have to impersonate Mr. Peterson? Or was that actually part of his plan? I think you could probably make the argument that he may have thought it would be like he would just pull up in the car, maybe not get out. But in case anybody saw him, he'd be in a nice suit wearing the hat and maybe glasses. Nobody recognized Regardless, after they pick up Sloan at the school, Ferris is still wearing the suit under the overcoat, right? Mm -hmm. Next scene, they're driving downtown. He's in his leather jacket, sweater, vest, and beret. Whole new Mm -hmm. outfit. What happened to the suit? Ooh, that's a good question. Interesting. That's my question. Good call. Because I thought, oh, that's convenient. Ferris brought a change of clothes for the the day in the town. But where did the clothes go then? Where did the suit? Did he put them in the back? Sure, he could have stuffed them under the cover behind the two front seats, but- then you don't see him with the suit ever after. I don't know. Very yeah. nitpicky guys, I know. But the whole, the suit was. It's like he changed a, the garage, you know, because they 
gave the car like right when they pulled up there. It's a yeah, it's a great call. I don't know. I don't know. Damn it, Jason, you ruined the movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's still perfect. <laughs> it's in the deleted scenes. That's what we. All, that's okay. the excuse. Yeah, we so that's what it is. Yeah, of course. Yeah, extended right. cut. Yeah, Sloan had to pick something up from the house, so he's like, "Oh, well, I'm going to change." <laughs> yeah, perfect. Bill, did you have any more complaints or any Swiss cheese? I think we're good. We can move on. So we'll move on to, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, right. we spotlight a character actor you've seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. So Ben, who is your choice for, hey, it's that actor? Yeah, I'm excited to hear who you guys picked. I think there's a lot of people in here um, that we could choose, but I just wanted to shout out uh, one of the smaller roles, but also, again, I think one of the more uh, well-known roles of Simone, which is played by Christy Swanson. Yes. Who people might know her from a lot of things, but she was the first, the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, from that movie. Obviously, like she's been in a lot of stuff. For me, she's uh, Adam Sandler's girlfriend at the beginning of Big Daddy, which is one of my favorite Adam Sandler movies, which I always yeah. shout out whenever I get the chance. So yeah, I love that character. And I just, again, it's one of those scenes where everyone knows the, my best friend, sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid going with a girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 flavors last night. And it's just like, it's played so serious and straight, you know, and then just Ben Stein, like, thank you, Simone, <laughs> you know, like, whatever, <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, so I just wanted to shout out Christy Swanson, you know, amongst the sea of great cameos and people in here. She's just someone who's like, oh, now I know where I know her from, you know, when I watch Buffy or Big Daddy or, you know, Dude, Where's My Car, all that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, I know who that is. All right, trivia really quick. So that was not her original role for the movie. She was actually supposed to play the girl on the phone. And then uh, it already got filmed. And John Hughes said, hey, I'll write another role for you. And he wrote that scene specifically for her in the classroom. That's awesome. Ah, that's great. And what I love great. about that scene, too, if you watch when they're do Ben Stein's doing the initial uh, roll call. And I think it's the first time I ever caught it. There's a fellow student behind and he's just totally checking her out. And just the way he's oh, staring yeah. her, he's got the hots for her, and it's just hilarious. That mm -hmm. made me laugh. I never saw that before because I'm so used to watching her just do her thing. I think he's the one that ends up drooling on his desk. Oh, yeah, he's yeah. That guy. Yeah, and he's totally checking Simone out. I'm just like, that's awesome. That would totally be me in high school. Jesus. Nice. <laughs> Love Christy Swanson. Hey, big fan. Big fan. Yeah. Oh, attractive young lady. Absolutely. So for my Hey, It's That Actor, I went with Scott Coffey, who played Adams. And he's the first student that was called mm. in the roll call by Ben Stein. Sure. Scott was also in another John Hughes movie, Some Kind of Wonderful. And I'm very jealous of him. He starred in three different movies with Naomi Watts. Oh, God, I love oh. Naomi Watts. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Tank Girl, Mulholland Drive, and Ellie Parker, in which he also directed. So my hate-set actor is Scott Coffey. That's awesome. That's a great call. Outstanding. Well, for my hate-it's-that actor, we've talked about him a bit already. Because he has one of the sneakiest, funniest lines in the movie. And he plays Mr. Tom Bueller. Lyman Ward, man, he's got that friendly mm -hmm. face. He's handsome yet slightly goofy, kind of has that character look. Man, his 80s, you know, he actually was in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's mm -hmm. Revenge in 1985 as Mr. Grady. He was also uncredited in Planes, Trains, and Aut Automobiles in 87. And then in 88, he's also uncredited. He has a role in She's Having a Baby, more mm -hmm. John Hughes films. So 
Here's some fun facts about Lyman Ward. He uh, played Jim Walsh in the pilot for the show Beverly Hills 90210 in 1990. But the scenes were cut and reshot with James Eckhouse. Hmm. How about that? Bummer. But uh, Lyman Ward met his ex-wife, Cindy Pickett, when they played husband and wife in this movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. They were married from 1986 to 1992. Nice. Ward also appeared in the very first episode of Laverne and Shirley in 1976. Yeah, Lyman Ward. Played an advertising executive in two John Hughes movies, as I named uh, this, Ferris Bueller's, and then uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. What else? He is 81 years old. And still working today, you know, a little bit more intermittently these days. But according to IMDb, yeah, still working. So that's cool. Lyman Ward. Awesome. Mr. Bueller. Brings us to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have learned for Ferris Bueller's Day Off? We can share with our audience. Ben, you can go first. What do you have for facts and trivia that we haven't stepped on already? Um, yeah, I was just going to say my number one, uh, it's like Jason's reading my notes because uh, it was the parents actually getting married in real life, which I thought was cool. One, though, that I will, uh, we talked a little bit about it earlier is Don Cushane. Um, I guess Matthew Broderick had never heard the song before. Um, John Hughes pitched it to him for singing in the parade. So one of the scenes where he was practicing the lyrics to learn the song was in the shower. He's like, oh, might as well just like see if I can figure out this song and doing the mohawk and things like that. And I guess that's when Johnny was like, stop, wait, we need to record this. Like, don't do that. And so that was kind of like an impromptu scene of him just like singing Donkashane to get ready for the parade scene. So I thought that was just kind of cool how, again, through the magic of editing and John Hughes and everything, we're able to tie it all together. So I, I like that. Very cool. Jason, what do you got? I've got a little bit of trivia here. Most of the license plates in this movie are all abbreviations for titles of films by John Hughes. Mm -hmm. Katie's was VCTN, an acronym for vacation, National Lampoon's Vacation for 1983. Genie's, Katie, by the way, being Mrs. Bueller, Jeannie Bueller, Jennifer Gray, had TBC on her license plate, The Breakfast Club from 1985. Tom, Mr. Bueller, had M-M-O-M, yeah, M-Mom, as in Mr. Mom. From 1983. That's the one I actually caught. I didn't catch these other ones. Rooney's plate was four, the number four FBDO, as in Ferris Bueller's oh, Day Off. Nice. Yeah. The exception, of course, was Cameron's father's Ferrari, which is uh, seen when first pulls out of the garage and the license plate, which reads nervous, N R V O U S. So some vanity plates there, sort of. That's cool. Uh, so Ferris Bueller's Day Off was released on June 11th, 1986 on 1,330 screens on an estimated budget of $6 million. It grossed $70.1 million domestically. The movie was never number one at the box office, but was the 10th highest grossing movie domestically of 1986. That's awesome. Right on. Did you have anything else, Ben? Yeah. The only other one that I like uh, for the trivia actually is the French restaurant that they go to. I, like you, Jason, for the longest time thought it was Chez Louis. But um, it's actually Shea Keys, which he did as a nod to the oh. Shakey's Pizza restaurant. So I thought that was really funny that he like turned it into the two French words, like which don't make sense together at all. But just to have it, um, but I guess like the cursive Q looks kind of like the number two or an L. So I forever called it Shea Louis. And then someone told me about it. I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense that it's Shakey's. And that I love that idea so much of him just like, again, like throwing in these little Easter eggs here of like this pizza restaurant, but we're going to name the super nice French restaurant after that. So that's just one of the trivia things I, I thought was kind of cool. That's outstanding. And I am happy to be corrected on that. Thanks, Ben, because I actually saw Shea Key in the research. I glossed over it thinking it was a typo oh, yeah. because I'm familiar with that French restaurant mm -hmm. in Chicago. And I was like, oh, that must have been a typo I read. But that totally makes sense now that that is yeah. actually 
what it, it seemed like a very so John for, thing to do. Oh, completely. That's awesome. Happy to be uh, corrected on that. And now I've learned something on my own podcast. Love it. <laughs> this is some inside baseball. According to the Inside Story documentary, Charlie Sheen's character's name is actually Garth Volbeck. There was going to be a whole backstory to his character and family. It was also revealed that the Volbecks are the family to whom Ferris's mom was showing the house in her job as a realtor. If you look closely, the tow truck that tows Rooney's car is from Volbeck's wrecking service. <laughs> also, a deleted backstory shows that Ferris and Garth, Charlie Sheen, were friends in the eighth grade. Garth's family's was pretty messed up, and Ferris tried to help him and be his friend, but Garth eventually dropped out of high school and wound up in the police station next to Jeannie. That's why Ferris is so intent on giving Cameron a good time. He blames himself for not helping Garth enough when he could. That makes perfect sense. Crazy. <laughs> I love it. I whole backstory. I love it. Again, it's another great scene, though. It's like, what are you in here for? It's like, I hate my brother. It's like, oh, did you kill him? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Oh, my so God. Good. One of my favorite. Like, again, ladies and gentlemen, listeners, we know every scene is quotable. There's a thousand yeah. quotes in it. And one of my favorite lines in it is when he says to Jeannie, Charlie Sheen, who hadn't slept, I guess, in 48 hours to prepare for yeah. this scene, he learns over and he goes, you know, you should really talk to somebody about this. And she goes, <laughs> if you say Ferris Bueller, you lose a testicle. <laughs> oh, you know him. <laughs> I love it. Ah, so uh, it's the best. Bill, did you have some more trivia for us? Yeah, so for reviews for this film, Siskel and Ebert were split on the movie. Gene gave it a thumbs down and Roger gave it a thumbs up. Leonard Moulton gave it two and a half out of four stars. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a tomato meter score of 81%. And IMDb gives it a rating of 7.8. Not bad. Hmm. Okay, so uh, before we start wrapping things up for this week's episode, are there any additional thoughts any of us want to share with our audience? Let's try to keep it uh, 30 minutes. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could go on forever. The main thing I wrote down uh, that I just wanted to admit my ignorance again, like when I saw this, you know, I was like in elementary, middle school. But when um, Ferris calls Cameron the first time and Cameron's in bed and he's like, is your mom home? And he says, no, she's in Decatur. Unfortunately, she's not staying I thought Decatur was like a Middle Eastern country or something. I had no idea where Decatur was, like having no familiarity with <laughs> sure. Illinois or anything. It's like, oh, wow, his mom is just like across the world. That's crazy. <laughs> you know. So it took uh, quite a while before I actually learned that Decatur is actually just like a town in Illinois. I just I wanted to throw that out there. I feel like I needed to admit that, that I had no idea what that was for the longest time. I, I got to confess too. Hilarious. I never understood how Rooney knocked out the dog. I thought there was something with the flowers that he made the dog eat, and that's what knocked him out. I didn't realize he used the bowl itself and slammed on that poor dog's head. So I'm glad the dog got his revenge at the end. I almost put that in my complaints as like yeah. animal cruelty. That's yeah. the one moment that's almost cringeworthy. Thankfully, we don't actually see it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, good call, Bill. Yeah, I was like, is this a, yeah. that's why I always thought. I was like, oh, is it some kind of flowers that the dog would just eat and then just knock him out? I didn't know. Yeah, same. But yeah, this time I realized I'm like, oh, man, he threw that bowl right on the dog's head. That's horrible. Um, I've got a couple of additional thoughts, and then I've got some questions for you fine gents. But okay. here's my uh, few additional thoughts. One, I'd like to bring back the expressions, it's so choice, and <laughs> he's a righteous dude. Uh, I will be saying those a lot more often from here on in because the kids today like to say things like, oh, that's sick or savage or something like that, which I'm sure is already outdated and makes me sound really old. But I just <laughs> want to say things. Oh, it's so choice. Go to a Cubs game if you're in town. There's an additional thought. 
last time I went was either in 2017 or 2018. It was beautiful, beautiful summer day in July. It's a smaller stadium, but you can feel the history instantly when you go in. The fans are great. It's a great place to see a ball game. Uh, so I always love seeing the Cubs and Wrigley Field in this movie, especially when you see on the, the marquee, the sign outside. Save Ferris. <laughs> yeah. Here's a little additional thought, a little story that includes Bill Bant. It's really funny. I'll never forget this. When Bill Bant and I and our uh, mutual friend Marwan would have team meetings regarding our independent film production, uh, we'd wrap it up. Marwan often would drive to the rest, but we'd meet at my place in Pasadena and Marwan would take off and Bill and I would have some late night discussions afterward. And one time we were walking out the front door of my apartment directly across the ground floor lobby. There's a family that lived there and the young boy that lived there was obviously studying violin and oh. he was a beginner student. <laughs> and <laughs> you can see where this is going. I forgot about and this. And I had often heard him playing, but then immediately we go to leave. I'm walking Bill out and he hears the boy playing across the way and he goes, and not one lesson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, it's so what good. I call the never had one lesson story. And it made me laugh so hard when Bill said that because he heard because I I'd heard the violin playing so so many times I'm like ah oh, he's learning the kids just trying I mean mm. it wasn't the worst but you could hear me that's a rough and then Bill work. just goes and not one lesson <laughs> like ah oh, Ferris Bueller quote nailed it way to be Bill Bent you remember that now I do don't you yeah try not to laugh all over our show. <laughs> Jason, you had some questions for us? Yeah, absolutely. Here's a quick one that I'm just going to answer myself. This is an often asked question. Is Ferris Bueller a good friend to Cameron? The answer is yes. I think he is. There are some people out there. There's people out there that talk. And I'm just going to shut him down right now. Ferris <laughs> Bueller is a very good friend to Cameron. Mm -hmm. uh, they go way back. He gets him out of his comfort zone. Yeah, he pushes him a little bit, but I think it is what Cameron needs. And you can see that they truly, they have kind of like this unspoken connection. There's some, there's so many subtle things between the actors in this film, little smiles here and there, and you just sense their connection. They're best buds. You know it. All right. Here's some serious questions. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back to your 17 year old self and have a Ferris Bueller day, meaning you could cut school and have an entirely carefree day with no consequences, what would you do? Ben, why don't, why don't you go first? Why don't you tackle it? Man, I mean, there's just like so much to do that we had. I'm, I'm channeling my 17-year-old self. We had like this huge kind of like arcade place here called the 49th Street Galleria. They had bowling. They had laser tag. They had a huge arcade. They had all that kind of stuff. If I could somehow score some cash and just go there, I could easily spend all day there. Uh, when I moved to Utah, where I had my first birthday party. So I, I would have spent a ton of time there. Uh, we have a local minor league team, the Bees. I do love going to a baseball game. So I think maybe in Spirit of Ferris, I also would have done something like that. And yeah, then probably just when I was 17, my favorite pizza place was still in Utah, which I now get whenever I can come to California and visit family. I would have capped it all off with round table pizza. That would have been the end of the day for me. So yeah, that's what I would have done for sure. Video games, baseball, and pizza. Pretty solid day for oh, a 17 yeah. year old. I love it. I'm sure, that brings back some memories when you're just even yeah. talking about it. Bill Bant, how about you? 17-year-old Bill Bant, what's your perfect carefree day? Man. Cut in school, senior ditch day. What do you do? So that's tough for me because I didn't drive, so I didn't have a car. So mm -hmm. it would definitely have to be somewhere I'd have to get by bus. 
So maybe if I could get a bus downtown and just check out from being from Philadelphia, there's just so many cool things to see oh, down nice. there. Yeah. You know, maybe check out the Liberty Bell, go to Independence Hall, stuff like that. But yeah, when you brought up arcade, yeah, I, I probably would at some point had to do uh, at least an hour or two at the arcade. For sure. Play a little Burger Time, Mr. Juice Castle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all over those. Burger Time. Hell yeah. yeah. Uh, good answers all around. I myself, man, again, I'm, uh, I've got some similarities to Mr. Ferris Bueller because, uh, yeah, I was also raised in a suburb of Chicago. I, uh, actually have done some of these things, but uh, I've been fortunate enough to do some of these things. I would go downtown Chicago. I'd grab a hotel room with my friends, get a little lunch at Chelly's Chili, Chelly, uh, Chris Chelios. I think he still owns a, a chili bar and grill, but it was like kind of this like open, long, big tables. Uh, you just get this great chili. Chris Chelios played for the Chicago Blackhawks, a uh, wonderful player. And then I think he oh, actually nice. ended up playing for the Detroit Red Wings for a bit. I would catch a Cubs game, maybe go to the theater, see Blue Man Group or a play. I'd eat dinner at Ed DeBevick's. If you've never heard of Ed DeBevick's, great, great old 50s retro diner style restaurant in downtown Chicago where the waiters and waitresses, they have attitudes. They come oh, up geez. to you and they're, and they're all dressed in the 50s. Some of them are greasers. Some of them have the, the poof, the skirts and the whole thing. They just give you, they're just, it's really funny. It's like a theme, the whole theme and you just go with it. I, speaking of arcades, I'd hit the Battletech Center. It's no longer there, but I believe, I looked this up on YouTube. You can find a video when they opened, I believe in 1990, uh, it's a video game. It's all like tech warrior mm. kind of thing. You get into the suit and you battle it out. But these were actual like simulator pods that you would climb into and it would enclose over you. And you had a throttle and a joystick and you had to go forward, backward, and you had multiple weapons and settings and you're going all over the place. And it was intense. And there were video screens when you'd walk into the room and you get a tutorial and it was a whole thing. And you get a card cool. afterward. And the name I gave myself was Kyle Reese. I wanted to be Kyle Reese from Terminator. So. Nice. I like that. So do a little battle tech, man. That was fun. And uh, yeah, maybe cruise around the city after that in a bicycle rickshaw. Love those things. It's a good way to see it. the city. So that's kind of what I would do. Here's my last question. Clearly another theme of this film is friendship. Mm -hmm. And throughout this film, Ferris continuously pushes Cameron outside of his comfort zone, trying to get him to live a little. Have either of you had a friend like that? Or do you have a friend like that today that'll push you a little bit? Maybe somebody that frustrates you at times, but ultimately you're grateful for them because you wouldn't have had certain experiences had it not been for them. Without a doubt, you guys have met my answer. Uh, Tyler, I, he is on three films in a podcast with me. I have known him for, man, going like 17 years now, something like that. He was, as I was getting my film degree, he was basically helping me on every project. So I, he kind of got a free one. He didn't have to pay <laughs> for the, the degree, but he got to help me with everything. Uh, and we ended up starting a company together and being in Utah, we covered a lot of weddings. We did some, you know, documentary work, but he pushed me out of my comfort zone because we would meet with potential clients. And no matter what they asked him, if we could do it, he would just say yes. And it freaked me out the first time. I was like, dude, I don't know how to do that. It's like, we'll figure it out. You know, that it was just kind of like his thing is like, yeah, we'll do it. We'll figure out how to do it. Cause how else are we going to learn? So at first it was very, very stressful, but I eventually you know, like tried to learn to see the positive side of that. So, um, I would 100% give that shout out to my friend, Tyler Beck, who really kind of pushed me as far as like my video skills went. We also met working at the airport. So he was a great travel partner of like, let's just go somewhere and see what there is there. So, um, yeah, some of my favorite trips have been with him. So I would shout out Tyler. Outstanding. That's a, that's great, man. Thanks for sharing that. 
Yeah, and hopefully we'll have Tyler in a future episode at some point. And if he doesn't answer me, you let me know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're limited on time, but I got to ask, favorite 80s John Hughes film? I'm going to go over the list real quick. These are all written or directed by John Hughes, starting from 1983, going to 1990, actually. Uh, we're going to go through it real quick. Mr. Mom, National Lampoon's Vacation, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, European Vacation, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Some Kind of Wonderful, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, She's Having a Baby, The Great Outdoors, Uncle Buck, Christmas Vacation, and yes, Home Alone. Well, we know Ben's answer, so we don't even have to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> that saves some time. I think my answer is going to match Ben's. I'm going Ferris Bueller. It's not recency bias. I am not going to be different. I'm also going with Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's an easy choice. Guys, what a pleasure it was to rewatch this movie today it was, yeah. and talk about it with you guys. Oh, man. It's that good. It's that It really good. is. Man. Yeah. I love it. And to give a idea of what my number two movie would be, I don't know if you guys have covered it exactly, covered it yet or not, but if you ever decide to cover Uncle Buck, I would love to come on for that because that would be my answer if I couldn't have answered Ferris Bueller. I love John Candy and that movie is amazing. All right. Excellent. Mark the take. <laughs> All right. So it's time to give this movie a rating. So using a five star rating system with zero stars being the worst and five stars being the best and half star increments are allowed. Since, Ben, you picked our movie today, it might be safe to assume that you gave it high marks. But will Jason and I agree? So, Ben, what do you give Ferris Bueller's Day Off from one to five stars? I mean, I can't be objective about this as we covered for the last little while here. Um, this is an easy five for five for me. This is my Desert Island movie. If I'm just taking one thing with me, not to sound like too crazy, but I have things tattooed on my bodies relating to this movie. Like, this is just my favorite thing that I've ever seen. Five out of five. Easy answer. Awesome. Ben, add on, man. What were you going to say? Oh, no. That, I mean, that, I mean, that was really it. Like, it's just uh, one of the things I have on me is life moves pretty fast because I think that's just one of my favorite lines ever. And just like, it's a great way, I think, to, to live your life. Absolutely. There are life lessons in this movie. Well, if I may go next, here's my answer. I'm just in bed with Ben for this entire thing, man. I was thinking before we did the show, before I saw the movie, maybe four to four and a half stars. I didn't want to overdo it. But after watching it, I am full on in love with this movie. It made me feel so good. Five stars for me. It's pretty perfect. It's a coming of age teen comedy. It hits all the right notes. Wonderful performances. Ridiculous amount of memorable quotes. Great city backdrop. Decent levels of character development. I pointed out the editing by Paul Hirsch, quintessential John Hughes. I'll mention it again. The actors in this are really, really good. Mm -hmm. The movie doesn't work without a Matthew Broderick, Jennifer Grey, Mia Sarah, Alan Ruck. This movie makes me feel young and carefree again. I love it. How about you, Bill Bant? All right. So I'm going to be a little bit different. Four and a half stars. You son of a bitch. I know. <laughs> All right. I mean, yeah, the thing about just high school is when I look back on it, God, that was such a waste of four years. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> what, did, what did you take from high school that you really use in everyday life, right? So yeah. I wish now that I had taken more time off like Ferris Bueller. It's a great performance by Matthew Broderick, and it is certainly a love letter to the city of Chicago. So four and a half for me. Outstanding. 
All right, Ben, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, why don't you take a, another moment to plug your excellent podcast and let the audience know how they can listen to you guys. Yeah, I mean, you can find us on all the podcast platforms. Um, again, my first pod is called Three Films on a Podcast, which these fine gentlemen have joined us on before, uh, where we're watching new things to us everywhere on socials at Three Films Pod. Uh, the other pod is 24 Minutes of A24. Um, all the socials there are at 24 Minutes of A24, where we're just going through the A24 library uh, 24 minutes at a time. So yeah, you can find all of our stuff there. All right. Well, that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Ben for joining us today. Please check out three films on a podcast podcast. And the, is it, what's that? A 24. Yeah. 24 minutes of a 24. And thank you so much for having me on. I'm so grateful to come on and talk about this. I appreciate the platform. So just like gush about this film for however long we've been talking. Um, like, you know, Jason said we could do all the way up to part five and I will be here to talk about it. So thank you guys this was a blast i hope i did okay as the first guest but you know i'm looking forward to coming back high marks high marks ben. you set the bar high it was our pleasure ben yes thank, thank you thanks, thanks for uh sharing your thoughts with us man sure also please take the time to subscribe go to review and rate us if you want to reach out you can email us at all 80s movies podcast at gmail.com please send us your feedback questions movies you want us to cover or recipes to share you can follow us on facebook meta and tiktok at all 80s movies podcast or tweet us at podcast all 80s for our next episode we'll be discussing my bodyguard starring chris mcpeace adam baldwin and matt dillon we hope you join us again have a totally great week everyone as ben said life moves pretty fast if you don't stop and look around once in a while you could miss it thanks for staying up with us good night world You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go. Chicka chicka.